0: We are continuing our look and our walk through, as Jeff mentioned in in the prayer, uh, this letter to the church in Philippi. Uh, We call it today the book of Philippians. If you have your Bible with you, as always, I'd encourage you to open it up and uh, keep it open because we're going to be looking at specific uh, verses and specific phrases and words as we go through this sermon. If you uh, don't have a Bible, uh, if you don't own one or didn't bring one with you, but, but would like to follow along as I read and, and like to follow along as the sermon goes on, if you look in the seat in front of you, underneath, you should find a, a Bible under there and that's uh, called an English Standard Version. It's what we're going to be looking at today. And uh, the text will be Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 to 26. So if you use that Bible, you'll find... Uh, that passage on page 980. Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 to 26. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. As we have mentioned many times, This letter was written by Paul from prison. Paul had been imprisoned in Rome. And so he's sending this letter to a church in the Roman colony, very influential, very wealthy city of Philippi. That city was roughly 800 miles away, Uh, but Paul wanted to express to them uh, many things in this letter, but so far we've seen him really express to them both how much he, he has affection for them, how much he loves them, how much he's thankful for them, how much he prays for them, and he, he also wanted to encourage them. He wanted to, uh, you know, you can imagine this church that's been supporting him uh, greatly. They've been supporting him through their prayers, monetarily, through uh, people. Uh, they've been totally in support over the last 10 years for his missionary work, and now they find out that he's languishing in prison under Roman guard, twenty-four-seven. And as we heard last week, uh, you know, he's he's under guard, uh, literally chained to a one of the Praetorian guardsmen. The Praetorian guard—they they guarded Caesar himself, as I mentioned last week. They were essentially Caesar's bodyguards. He had nine thousand of them, and. And these guards would rotate in four-hour shifts, and one would relieve the other and and chain himself to Paul. And so he never had time away. Uh, He never had time alone. He was imprisoned and and chained to a praetorian guard his entire life, 24-7. And yet, despite that he was in prison— And however much this church might be wondering and maybe nervous what's going on, is is the gospel being stopped? Is Paul imprisoned uh, outside of God's will? Uh, Is Christianity even real? Whatever they may be worried about, one of the things Paul wanted to do was to reassure them and encourage them that no, despite the fact that I'm in prison, the gospel is being spread. That God is in fact using my imprisonment not only to spread the gospel throughout the entire praetorian guard, but because they're hearing the gospel, Caesar's household is hearing the gospel. That's where we ended last week. And, and Paul here, you know, he ends that section with saying, yes, I rejoice. Even though all of this hardship is happening to me because I can see how God is working, I will rejoice. And he begins here, in this next section, by saying yes, and I will rejoice. I'm rejoicing now, and I'm going to continue to rejoice. Why? Well, he says this, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's essentially saying I'm no I am totally convinced, I'm utterly certain that my life is not going to end here. It's not going to end in a Roman prison. He says, this will end up for my deliverance. Now, when we look at that word that Paul uses here for deliverance, historically, The word that he's using, if you look all throughout Greek literature, if you look at different letters that are written at that time, not Paul's, but other letters, other books that are written, when that word is used, it always means physical well-being. It always means vindication and release from prison, that kind of thing. And so, Because that's the way the word is always used, that's the way that these Philippians would have understood that word, And, and it makes sense, given Paul's context, that he could have been using it that way. If he says to them, look, I know I'm in prison now, but I'm convinced that all of this hardship is not going to end here, but I will be delivered And he uses that word, then it makes sense that he would be saying, I would be, I'm going to be vindicated. I'm going to be found not guilty, and I'm going to be released physically from prison. And in fact, you can kind of see that it is what he's talking about. Because if you just go down to the end of this passage, look down at verses 25 and 26. Verses 25 and 26, he says, Convinced of this, I know that I'm going to remain and continue with you all, meaning physically, meaning I'm going to remain alive. And I'm going to continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So he even specifies at the end of this letter, or at the end of this section that we're looking at, that. I'm convinced I'm going to return to you physically. I'm going to come to you again. One day you'll see me. I'm not going to end up here. So he's rejoicing in that. And again, it makes total sense. And I think it would have made sense to them at this point what he's talking about. And if you look at verse 19, you notice what he says the Lord is going to use as the means of his deliverance. What what is God going to use to deliver him? is 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 he envisioning that that a SWAT team is going to come and 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 somehow lead him out and 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 lead him in some grand escape does he think that that uh, like what happened earlier in Philippi that that the prison doors are going to just open up miraculously and the chains will miraculously fall off and and he will leave no that's not what he says here If you look at verse 19, he he tells us what what he means. He says, the Lord's going to use these means for my deliverance. I know that through, or by means of, both your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this is going to turn out for my deliverance. He's saying that through your prayers for me, coupled with the help of the Holy Spirit, in me, I'm going to be delivered. How so? That's a question that, that I had to ask myself over and over again as I, as I studied this passage this week. Uh, how, how, does, how are those two things going to lead him to be delivered? Well, if you think back, and if you just if you know your Bibles, if you've read the Old Testament uh, enough, Maybe even if you haven't read much of the Old Testament, you've still heard some stories, I'm sure. And you know that God, many times throughout history, has called his people to stand and to go go before and to testify before the greatest, humanly speaking, powers in the world. Just go, and I mean, it's amazing. I mean, just go read through the Old Testament and you see again and again and again, God leads his people who previously were somewhat insignificant in the world's eyes to go before the greatest powers in the world. God led Moses to go before Pharaoh. God on earth, as far as Egypt was concerned. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those uh, otherwise unknown men who were led away in exile, God called them to stand up, not to bow down, and to testify before King Nebuchadnezzar of their faith in God. Think of Queen Esther, otherwise again an unknown Jewish woman who God called for that time and that place. To walk into the room of King Xerxes, stand before him, and to testify before him. God called Nehemiah, again, an, an otherwise unknown cupbearer, to go and stand before King Artaxerxes and to present his case before him. Time and again, you see God's people being called to stand before these great and mighty and powerful people, humanly speaking. And when you look at those moments What is it that those people continually relied on? None of them relied on their own ingenuity or their own courage or their own strength or their own wisdom. None of them went into it alone, thinking, I've got this. Time and again, they asked for help. They recognized the dire situation they were in. They recognized what God was calling them to do. They recognized how feeble they were in their own strength compared to this great king, and they asked for help. Moses didn't want to go at all. Don't send me to Pharaoh. Pick somebody else. And God replied, listen, Moses, I will be with you. I will go with you, and I will teach you what to say. When defying Nebuchadnezzar's orders, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they they weren't uh, some you know, in and of themselves, mighty men who said, you know, we're not, we're going to defy you because we know we can take on all of you. They said, look, we're not going to bow down to your statue because the God who we worship, our God is able to deliver us from the fire. We can't escape you. You're definitely going to throw us in, no doubt about that. But our God, if he chooses to, can deliver us. Esther, what did she say? I don't want to go in there. If I go into that room and and he doesn't extend to me his scepter of mercy, I'm dead. It doesn't matter that I'm his wife. She she was encouraged. How do you know that God hasn't raised you up for this time? And what did she say? Okay, if I'm going to do this, I want you to fast and pray for me for three days and tell all the rest of the Jews to do the same, and I will do the same. What about Nehemiah? He was Artaxerxes' cupbearer, his most trusted trusted servant, tasted all of his uh, food before it went to King Artaxerxes so that he would die in case the food was poisoned. Before he went in and asked King Artaxerxes what he wanted to ask him, what did he do? He prayed and fasted for days. All of them, and there are many others, knew that they couldn't face the power and authority of this world's greatest human powers without divine help. And this brings us to the Apostle Paul. He is in prison in Rome. Why is he there? He is awaiting trial before Caesar himself. The Praetorian Guard not only guarded Caesar, but they also guarded those who were on trial to go before Caesar. And as I've mentioned already, the Caesar at that time was Nero. Now, if you're not that familiar with Nero, I've said briefly, you know, and, and some of you have probably heard he, he was kind of a maniac or a madman or, or a tyrant of some sort. Let me just give you a little bit of a biography of this man. Suetonius, ancient historian Suetonius, he says, even as a young man. Now, Nero was crowned emperor at age 17. Those of you who have teenagers, I I mean, there's a little bit of trepidation of of giving a 17-year-old keys to a car. Can you imagine giving a 17-year-old a crown that tells him you're basically God on earth? But that, that's a normal 17. Before he was crowned as a young man, Nero, Suetonius says, would wait in the dark in city streets for men who were returning from dinner, and he would attack them for no reason And if they resisted, he would stab them and throw their dead bodies in the sewers. This is the man who is crowned emperor a few years later. His mother, Nero's mother, most likely murdered his father. And she herself was murdered by Nero after he failed in trying to assassinate her five times beginning as he became more and more uh, sort of paranoid. He he already was a a nasty human being, but as his reign went on, he became more and more paranoid of those around him. And so what did he do? He reinstituted this Roman anti-treason law, and he began rounding up thousands of noblemen and having them executed because he just assumed that they were conspiring against him. He put his first wife to death and then got remarried and he murdered his second wife who was pregnant with his child by kicking her to death. He murdered his brother. He oversaw so many executions of so many nobles and senators that Roman scholar Michael Grant says no provincial governor or army commander felt safe any longer. Someone else sums it up this way. Nero murdered thousands of people, including his aunt, stepsister, ex-wife, mother, wife, and brother. Some were killed in searing hot baths. Some were poisoned, beheaded, stabbed, burned, boiled, crucified, and impaled. Thousands of Christians were starved to death, burned, torn by dogs, fed to lions, crucified, and used as torches. And Nero ended this reign of terror himself by committing suicide now if you're like me you may have had some difficult conversations at some time in your life I have I think every one of us here if you're a certain age and older you've had to maybe face a friend that you thought was maybe going off the rails and you felt like you had to confront them Before you did it, you were nervous. Maybe you had to go in to a boss that that you didn't really click very well with and you're going in for your year-end evaluation and you were a little nervous to talk to him or to talk to her. Some of you, maybe, you've had a really tough time and, and you've really had to sweat it out before having a conversation with a sibling or a parent or a child. But as I think about what Paul is about to do and the kind of person he is about to go before, and don't forget that everyone knows Paul is a Christian because he's made it clear to Nero's own praetorian guard that he is. And all the members of Nero's household know that he is. He's about to go before this man. I don't think any uncomfortable or difficult conversation that I have ever had comes within the same universe of the kind of stress and pressure and fear that Paul could have been facing awaiting trial before Nero. And so he's asking, he's saying, I am so thankful that I'm not going before Nero in my own strength. I know that it is by your prayer and by the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ within me, that I'm going to be able to speak to this man. And what does he say? He says, look, in verse 20, see, it's my eager expectation and hope, not that I'm going to be able to spin it well enough that he lets me free. It's not his eager expectation and hope that, that somehow I'll be able to... to uh, fulfill some plan of escape before I go before him or or somehow I'm able to smooth him over before I talk to him. No, he says, it's my eager expectation and hope that when I go before him, I'm not going to be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Specifically that phrase there, with full courage, that That specifically does not refer to necessarily actions or feelings of courage, but that phrase there that Paul's using, it's specifically referring to boldness of speech or frankness of speech in intimidating circumstances. See, Paul has been preaching boldly for years, and he's had opposition. This isn't his first hard time, believe me. He's had to go into synagogues and and go before other rulers and governors and other people and share that he's a Christian. But this is the first time he's going before the most powerful man in the world. And he's saying that I'm going empowered by God. And he says this, that the outcome that he knows for certain is going to happen is that he's going to be delivered, that he's going to be vindicated, that he's going to be set free, that one day he will get to visit them again. Until that point, everything that Paul says kind of makes sense. I mean, the only thing that might not really make sense is, well, I'm not quite sure how you preaching boldly and speaking boldly to Nero that you're a Christian is somehow going to get you an innocent verdict. But if the Spirit has given you the words to say, if we've been praying for you, okay. I guess it makes sense. Everything makes sense until he says something at the end of that sentence that is really strange. Strange. Look at verse 20 again. It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ is going to be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So, all of a sudden, Paul throws in here, I may very well die. I'm going before this man and I'm going to speak boldly that I am in fact a Christian. I know this man can kill me with the wave of his hand. I know he can have me beheaded the next day. And I know this man is not fond of Christians. Paul might know a lot of horrific things about Nero. And so he says, I'm going to go before him and I'm going to speak boldly and I'm going to be set free, whether by life or by death. Now, how does that make any sense? If if he dies, then what becomes of this deliverance he is so confident about? See, one sentence earlier, he speaks of utter confidence of being delivered, vindicated, set free. And one sentence later, this isn't like five years later he's contradicting himself. It's in the same sentence. It's in the same breath. Paul says, I'm I'm going to be set free. I have no doubt about it. And then he says, hey, by the way, there's a real possibility I might be condemned and beheaded. Appears a, a complete contradiction. Unless you understand what Paul is doing here. He's employing a word that has two distinct meanings. That word that he uses in this letter, meaning delivered, that Greek word, yes, historically, yes, as far as the Philippians are concerned, yes, as far as other Greek literature is concerned, it means physical well-being. It means being vindicated in court. It means being set free physically from prison. But when Paul uses that same word, Every time he uses it, Paul means not physical well-being, not vindication in a human courtroom, not release from a human imprisonment. When Paul uses that word in all of his letters, he means spiritual well-being. He means vindication before the courtroom of God. He means release from sinful imprisonment. See, simply put, when Paul uses that word, he means eternal salvation. You see, if you look at what Paul's saying in this whole section, and it's why I had, and scholars are, greatly divided on this. Go read lots of excellent scholars. And they're divided on this because they see Paul saying two different things. And it's what I struggled with all week as I studied this. Because on the one hand, uh, Paul could be saying, if if you just read through the whole passage, he could be saying, look, I know that I am going to be set free from prison physically and come to visit you again. On the other hand, you could argue, but that's not how Paul uses it. And he's also talking about being killed here. So what does he mean? Well, if we look carefully at the exact phrase that Paul uses, this will lead to my deliverance. He's taking it directly and exactly from the book of Job. Word for word quote. Paul was an Old Testament scholar. If you read Job 13, 15 to 16, Job says this, though he slay me, though God kill me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation. Job, yes, on the one hand, Job, the whole book, is about him being vindicated before a human court. Just read through the story. You see his friends are accusing him of sin that he never committed. And Job, over and over again, is saying, that's not true about me. On the other hand, Job includes this phrase, for I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been thus destroyed yet in my flesh, I will see God. See, Job doesn't just end with vindication before a human court. That's important to him. But Job knows that ultimately his deliverance, his vindication, his salvation will be eternal. It's interesting, incidentally, the Hebrew word that Job uses for deliverance or for salvation is the Hebrew word Yeshua, which is, in Greek, Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, in essence, look, I know one thing for certain, I know I'm going to be delivered. I know I'm not going to end here. One way or the other, I'm going to go before Caesar. I'm going to present to him who I am, that I am a a Christian, and God will take care of it. Either I am going to be delivered physically, in which case I will see you again, or I will be delivered into the hands of God. And in which case, I will see him face to face. Paul says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. He, he recognizes I, I haven't really been able to do what I want to do. I've been, I've been in prison. I'm chained to a guard. I can't go around and, and visit churches. I can't plant churches. I can't visit you. I can't help strengthen in person churches that I've planted. i planted. I want to do that. I would love to be set free. I want to see you again. And on the one hand, I know that that's what it will mean. If I'm set free from here, guaranteed, I'm coming to see you. I can't wait to see you. I can't wait to strengthen you again. And so I know it's going to mean fruitful labor. However, he says that if I'm not set free, it means something even better. If I receive the death penalty, then I'm still going to be delivered from here. That's non negotiable. God is going to deliver me. Either He will deliver me to you, which will be great, or He will deliver me to Him, which will be far better. And that's why Paul says, I don't know which one to choose. As I am awaiting my trial before Caesar, I am in agony because though I want to help you out and though I want to continue living and though I would love to see fruitful labor for myself here, on the other hand, if I really got to choose, I kind of hope that Nero condemns me to death because if he condemns me to death, then I will be absent from the body and present with the Lord. Make no mistake, Paul is not a madman. He doesn't have a death wish. On the one hand, he hopes that he can see them again. But on the other hand, he can't wait to be with Christ. And so basically what Paul is saying is that he has one mission, He doesn't have to try to plan an escape. He doesn't have to try to somehow uh, get people on his side to to try to twist Nero's arm. He doesn't have to do any of that. All he has to do is be faithful to Christ. That's it. It's real simple for him. All I need to do, do is go before Nero and tell him who I am. I don't need to try and do anything else. Because I know that in the end, Jesus will take care of me. Either way. You see, Paul was like, in a sense, he was like Daniel. When Daniel heard that if you bow down and pray, you're gonna be cast into the lion's den. It's interesting, the scripture just says so Daniel went to his room and prayed as he had always done before Daniel wasn't trying to stick it in the king's eye he he was a faithful servant of the king he I'm sure he he had hoped that he could serve him for the rest of his life he probably didn't want to be thrown into the lion's den and be torn to shreds by hungry lions but he also wasn't going to stop being who he was He wasn't going to stop serving his God. That was more important to him than any edict that could have been passed down. And so he just did what he always did. He entrusted himself to God and he knew, look, one way or the other, I'm going to be saved. Either God is going to shut the mouths of these lions or he's going to take me home. But I'm his and so I'll serve him. Paul didn't have to worry about anything else. All he had to worry about going before Nero was being faithful to Christ and that Jesus would take care of the rest. Paul sums this whole thing up. That the, Essentially, he sums up the Christian life with one phrase, and it's in verse 21. You see, Paul says, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We actually, in, in English, add the ises in there. But it's even more striking, in a sense, in the Hebrew, because they're not even in there. Paul just says, to me, to live Christ, to die, gain. I think this phrase is, in a sense, so well known that I fear brothers and sisters, that, that this phrase might have lost some of its potency. But I want you to think about how incredible this phrase truly is. As you sit here this morning, what is it that you live for? What is your goal in life? What is your number one reason for being alive? You know, in the, in the 90s, I remember people wearing these shirts And they would say, basketball is life. The rest are just details, right? There'd be this big basketball in the center. Or soccer is life. They they kind of made one for every sport. This world offers an almost infinite amount of things to live for. Money is life. The rest are just details. Fame is life. The rest are just details. Pleasure is life. The rest are just details. Power, influence, comfort, security. There's an almost infinite amount. They are for us, and they were for the people in Philippi. They had lots of things they could live for. But you see, what what you have to do is put any one of those things in Paul's sentence and see if it makes any sense. Try it. For me, to live is money, and to die Gain? For, uh, see, see, to me, to live is fame. And to die, gain? Put anything in there. Pleasure. Basketball. You know, friends, if you replace Jesus with anything else in this world, then to die is not gain. It is incredible loss. In fact, for anything else in this world, for most things, getting old is loss. I remember reading an article, I've shared this before, but it was an article and they, it was a long, really great interview with Michael Jordan. And I remember Michael Jordan in this, in this interview saying that the guy was pointing out just how much money he has now, how, how much influence. He's Everywhere he goes, he's mobbed. I mean, he's, he's beloved everywhere. He's got all the money he could ever want. And he said, you know, I would give up all of that, everything I have, if I could be young again and be able to play basketball like I used to. See, he's not even dead yet. And he's already saying, I've lost so much. See, Paul... Paul did pursue lots of other things in his life, and he was really good at it. He he was an amazing mind, amazing scholar. He had throngs of people probably wanting to sit at his feet and listen to him. But when Paul met Jesus, as we will see in this letter, he said, when I met Jesus, I realized that everything else I was after is essentially garbage in comparison. see, because... Friends, Jesus once said this, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought that one pearl. See, in Jesus, Paul found the pearl of great price. And Paul said, Jesus, you are worth far more to me than anything else that this world has to offer. Is that true of you? As you sit here this morning, would you say honestly, Jesus is worth more to you than anything else that this world has to offer? Some of you may be sitting here this morning saying, I've never even thought about Jesus being valuable, much less more valuable than anything else. I would encourage you to find out what it is that Paul and many of us in this room believe about Jesus you could talk to me if you'd like after the service now I have a question for you if you would answer yes I think he is more valuable to me I think Jesus is my pearl of great price then the way you find out is by asking yourself this question what would you be willing to gain if it meant that you would have to lose Jesus is there anything that you can put there Would you be willing to become the richest person in the history of the world if it meant you would lose Jesus? Would you be willing to have perfect health from now until you're 120 and then you die in your sleep if it meant that you have to lose Jesus? Would you be willing to gain anything in this world if it meant that you would have to lose Jesus. You see, for Paul, there was nothing in this world that he could gain if it meant that he would lose Jesus. There was only one time that Paul ever said, for this, I would be willing to lose Jesus. You know what that was? He said, I would be willing to give him up so that all of my brothers over here who don't know him could come to know him. That was simply just a statement of sacrificial love. That wasn't Paul saying, something else is more valuable to me than Jesus. It was simply saying, I'm willing to go to hell so that all of them could go to heaven. What about you? Is Jesus the sum total of your life? Could you, like Paul, say, for me to live, Christ? If you can say that, then you can also say the second part of that sentence. For you, if for you to live is Christ, then for you to die will be gain. They say there are only two things that are certain in this life, death and taxes. I actually, I mean, I just think that's kind of a stupid statement. I think there's only one. I mean, how many people can avoid taxes? You hear about it all the time, loopholes. Nobody's avoiding death. Death is one for one. Everyone in this room is going to end up in a coffin one day. No one escapes it. It was true then, it's true now. And this is why I think it's very important to try to put ourselves in the place of these first century uh, Philippian Christians, because what they heard from Paul in that statement is something that you can't find anywhere else in this world. They didn't have 2,000 years of church history behind them. They hadn't heard their whole life about going to heaven because of Jesus. All they knew about death was that it was great loss. And yet, they hear a man tell them that if you're in Christ, then death is gain. You see, about 30 years prior to Paul writing this letter to them. One crucified man hung on a cross next to another crucified man. And both of them suffering incredible agony. Both of them mere moments away from death. And yet the one man looked at the other man and said, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. He said, your life doesn't end here on this cross because you believe in me i promise you you will be with me in paradise i was in a restaurant i'll close with this i was in a restaurant uh, last week um, and uh, i was eating by myself i was away for a solo pastor retreat for a couple of days and this one night i was out eating dinner in quarryville and i just overheard a, a, a conversation at the other table and, uh, and this guy said, you know, my mom died last week. And, and the other people said, well, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And he said, well, she was 99. And they said, oh, well, that's, that's good. I mean, he said, yeah, you know, she lived a full, rich life. And they said, yeah, that's all anyone could hope for. If that's what you're thinking today, that that death is is somehow beaten by living to 99 and then dying a full life, then you have to realize that's not the Bible's answer to death. The Bible doesn't say, just hope for a long life and a pleasant death and that's the best anyone can hope for. The Bible's answer is infinitely greater than that. The Bible says, behold, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. See, friends, the answer to death, the only real answer that has ever been given is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this amazing reminder that we who trust in Christ will gain in our death, that we will be forever with you, We pray that you would impress that upon our hearts as we leave here today. In Jesus' name, amen.